0: in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 27. I wanted to give you a little bit of insight to kind of my process in writing a sermon and kind of how I do this. I, I, um, there was a, a man named Mortimer Adler. I think he was actually one of the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica. He also wrote a book called How to Read a Book. And often, I think I've mentioned this before. It's often made me think it might be nice to write a sermon on how to listen to a sermon or how to engage in worship or something like that to kind of go, what are we doing here? And, and, but, but just in terms of the, for you to understand kind of where I go, I have a great job. I mean, can you a, imagine having a job where a huge part of your job is opening the Bible and studying it, like for hours, so I'll have a text, you know, like we have a text today, 27 through, 22 through 27, and I'll try to figure out what is, what is that text saying? Like I want to understand it. I want to understand, you know, the, the, the theme or the point or what have you, recognizing that even though we might have one truth, there might be multiple applications of the one truth in the passage. So I'll, I'll do that study, and then I'll ask myself, after I've studied it, I'll ask myself, what does this mean to me? Like, how has how what I've done all week affected me, either now or in the past? And what I'll do is, I'll, I'll try to figure out what that is. I'll look at my own life. And that's usually the introduction that you hear. The introduction is when I say something like, I recall many years ago. Right? And then that text brought my mind there. Just so you understand kind of where I'm going to start with this particular text and how it engaged me. But as we go through the text and we study, it might bring you different places. It's not not going to bring you to my experience. It might, some of you. But it's going to bring you other places where you're thinking, oh yeah, this is definitely something that challenges me or ministers to me or comforts me or chastises me or whatever it might be, you know, wherever wherever the Holy Spirit brings you in terms of what the Bible is teaching. Having said that, Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27, hear now the word of God. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written In the Lamb's Book of Life. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as you've given us, as it were, a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth, this holy Jerusalem, let us, Father, we do pray, understand and appreciate the glory that is set before us. We do pray that a passage like this would tell us a great deal about you and that we would walk away with the greatest application being our worship of you. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I recall I started attending church. I mean, I kind of did as a 7-year-old wandered into a church in Hermosa Beach, but the first time I I really started attending church regularly to the point where I'm still attending it now was as a teenager. And I remember feeling very out of place. I wasn't raised in the church. I remember feeling very out of place walking into a church. And I I recall borrowing my dad's tie, and I think I got one of his jackets. I didn't really know what to wear. And as I got in, I'm like, I'm going to try to fit in here. But people were standing up and sitting down and reciting things, and I had no idea what was going on. They were referencing Sunday school stories that I had no idea I mean, everybody was kind of nodding. Oh, I know that story. I didn't know that story. The entire event seemed awkward to me. The church event seemed awkward to me. Yet, the Holy Spirit had a hold of me, and I continued. I didn't go, this is awkward, I'm leaving. A few years came and went, and I found myself on a mission trip. And the director of this mission, I was told, was ex-military. And he ran this mission trip with a very tight fist. Rules, meetings, regulations, structure, it was all very demanding. I remember one time, you know, I, we, I was, we were in a city where I knew people. It wasn't in California, it was out of the state, but I knew some people there. And I'm like, hey, I, can I visit my friend? And I, he, he, this guy engaged me in this lengthy interview to just let me off of the compound to go visit somebody, you know, it was very, it felt, I'll be honest, it felt oppressive. And, you know, being the type of person that I was, I kind of voiced my concerns. And you know what happens when you do that? Other people find you. It might not have been the best way to approach it, but other people found me who felt the same way that I felt. They were like, yeah, this environment is hard core. I recall one girl telling me, she's like, I'm really having a hard time sharing the joy of Christ with others when I'm not experiencing it myself. I'm not remotely artistic, but I found myself drawing a picture in one of my many binders that we had for the the missionary adventure here. And and, and I I opened it up, and on, on one page of this binder, blank page, I wrote the name God. And then I, then, so you have God over here. And then in the middle, I drew pictures of the teams and the meetings and the rules and the regulations, this whole big labyrinth of stuff, you know, God's here. And all this stuff designed, you know, for the success of the ministry. And on the far other side of the page, I drew me. And the point of my little private project was that this entire ministerial enterprise seemed to build a wedge between me and God. I I didn't go there and at all feel or experience a closeness with God. I I didn't feel like a child in somebody's household, in my father's household. Because even, even if I did feel that, you know, if you feel like you're a child in the household and the household has rules and you're part of the household, you can, like, live with that, you know? you got to do the dishes. you got to vacuum. you got to put the trash out and so forth. I mean, this is a part of being the household. I didn't feel that way. What I felt like, I felt like somebody outside the house looking in to this, through this very thick, foggy impenetrable window, that, that God is in there somewhere, but I'm not. I'm out here, and I'm feeling about as distant from God as I possibly could be. Yet, the Holy Spirit had a hold of me. I didn't walk away from the faith. I continued on. Well, as I found myself in positions of ministerial leadership, I recall that experience. I mean, that experience was over 40 years ago, but I, it's, ve- it's very etched in my, my thinking. And I remember making a very self-conscious effort to avoid, as a leader in a church, allowing or fostering that type of environment for those who would be in the ministry that I'm part of. Now, let me just tell you, I am not suggesting for a moment that I've succeeded at that. But the value of a minister, a ministry, or a church to herald God, to kind of go, this is is where you're going to meet God, has to be done in such a way as to not be an impediment. We We, as a church, are not to stand between God and the ones that He seeks to redeem and love. I mean, heaven forbid that you walked in this church and you walked out feeling God is further away than I thought He was. In a certain sense, now don't get me wrong, we are to engage in things. Word and sacrament, we are to, the, the vows, right? Dis- we are to engage in those things. I'm not, this is not a, a license for negligence or, or lethargy. But in a certain sense, the more invisible that we are, the more valuable we are. You know, uh, uh, there was a time when pastors, well, they still do this, wear robes. You know why pastors wore robes? They wore robes to bring attention away from themselves. They like, say, so you, don't, you don't notice what the pastor's wearing. And then all, robes became what? Like, you know, they became status symbols. Look how many stripes I got on my robe, tassels and what have you. And I remember when I, I remember at some point going, I need to dress in such a way as to be as invisible as I possibly could be. So for about eight years in this church, I wore a white shirt and a tie until somebody said, you look kind of like a Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So, you know, we, but it's this effort of going, okay, I need to not be distracting. I think with John the Baptist, we need to say this. He, that is Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. In a certain sense, I, as the pastor, the teaching of the church, I need to be expendable. If if the Lord brings me home between this week and next week, this church should continue to function the, the same way it's been functioning. And let us avoid the error of Moses. I mean, you think about Moses and all that he did. And yet he wasn't able to enter into the promised land. Why? You know why? Because when God said, speak, he said, no, I'm going to bang the rock. And, it, that, see, and then he's it, like, yeah, because you did that, you don't enter the promised land. It's kind of a heavy duty discipline, isn't it? But God seems to be very jealous about the way he's presented. He goes, it's like, if I want to present myself gently, present me gently. There are times for a rebuke, but when I say don't, don't do it just because you're frustrated. The environment of worship should be as such that the purity of God's word is so presented. It's a prayer that I would have that if you walked in this church, the purity of God's word is so presented that even, as Paul writes, an uninformed or unbelieving person can be directly touched by God himself. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 14, 25, where the word of God is being spoken, and thus, because the word of God is coming out, the secrets of his heart, he's talking about the unbeliever, the uninformed, the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. I think we can endure almost any pain, any discomfort, any frustration with the knowledge that God is on our side. You know, when, when we're convinced, I remember um, when I did first come to faith and I remember thinking, okay, those of you who know me know that it's a challenge for me even to come east of Crenshaw. I mean, I grew up in Hermosa, in Redondo, and I'm like, I don't, I don't like leaving and, uh, and I remember when I was coming to faith, I thought to myself, all right, well, but I don't want to be a missionary. Because you always think that when you're a kid. You're like, oh, God's going to send me to some place I don't want to go. And I've never been like a full-time missionary, but I do remember, at least providentially, God going, you're going to China. I mean, I don't know how this sounds. I, I don't want to go to China. Maybe, you know, Southern Europe. <laughs> but it, but it, became, it, it became so providentially clear, and I, you could ask me about it during Q&A, that God's going, no, you need to go to China. It was so obvious that God wanted me to do that. It's all, I felt like it was, so he was just kind of going there, go that way, that in a certain sense it was easy for me to make that choice. It wasn't like, oh, no. like I was like, God is going, look at it. There's a plan here. I'm letting you know what it is, and I'm going to be with you, but you need to do it. And you're like, okay. There's a strength that comes with that. You see, if God is our dwelling place, if God is our refuge, we read in Psalm 91, 11, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So he's like, okay, I'm sending you but I'm sending a regiment with you. Because the only person that was with me at the first time was Lauren, (laughs) who's kind of a regiment, (laughs) and Zolfin. I mean, but it's like God's going, like, and I'm going to show you there's something else going on here. Just go, and whatever it is, whatever your difficulty, I am with you. Like I said, it, it is the call of the church to herald the gospel, to administer the word and sacrament, to lovingly tend to the congregants. I mean, that's a commission that we're given. But sometimes, and I hope you understand what I mean when I say this, sometimes the best thing you can do is just get out of the way. Like When I'm, have, when I'm evangelizing with somebody, I don't want them to contend with me. I want them to contend with the truth. I've said many times, when you come to our church, I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to know you're guilty. If I just make you feel guilty, you're going to stop feeling guilty by the time you get, you know, to Carson and Crenshaw. But if you know you're guilty, guilty before God, you've got a problem that needs to be dealt with, and there's an answer to that problem. Verse 22, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I've entitled this message, The Perfect Church. Here we have it. You see, my own early ministerial difficulty was not unique to me. It wasn't as if I'm the only one who struggled with a church environment that I just kind of was very uncomfortable with. Many people have been wounded by church. And I'll tell you this, church wounds, if you're wounded, that's a deep wound. You can wound me at the grocery store. You know, the butcher can talk mean to me. By the time I'm in produce, I'm forgetting it. But when you're going, no, this is the depth of who I am. I'm coming in here to worship God. It is my heart. It is my soul. And I'm in an environment where I've been wounded. That's a deep, deep wound. And I would like to say that our church has never been the perpetrator but I'm sure that there are many outside who would testify otherwise. I don't, I'm not suggesting for a minute that we as a church have succeeded in this. But what we're presented in this new heavens and new earth, this heavenly Jerusalem that we're reading about in this passage, is a bride absent the clumsy attempts of the militant church seeking to conduct herself in a holy manner, which, by the way, she should do. But we're not looking at the clumsy, militant church filled with sinners. God is opening our eyes to the church where God himself is the temple, where the Lamb is the temple. It's the perfect church. Now, should that be our goal? I hope so. But, I you know, I mean, I've always taken a lot of comfort with being as honest with you as I possibly could be. And sometimes the fact that I'm in the pulpit feels like a divine joke on the part of God. I just feel like, are you kidding me? I mean, to this day, when I do weddings, and I say, by the power vested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pronounce your husband and wife, part of me thinks I'm playing a game in the backyard. Hey, I'll be the minister. Your husband and wife. It is. I'm like, are you kidding me? Somebody one time, and during Q&A, said... Well, you know, if it's all about humility, why do we call you reverend? And I'm like, well, it was a good question, and I don't usually go by reverend. I usually go by pastor, but let's go with that. The fact that somebody would say reverend makes me feel like I'm occupying a post that should be revered. How am I doing? I ask myself. Because, again, I feel like it's, there's a divine humor to the fact that, yeah, you're, they're going to call you reverend. The people I play volleyball with down at the beach... They like to call me the pastor of disaster. (laughs) Part of that is because I play really cheap. I'll go over on one, I go over on two, and they're like, you're a pastor? And I'm like, I'm kind of an Old Testament. (laughs) But I have to, to be honest with you, sometimes in our efforts to enter his praise or his gates with praise and thanksgiving, in a manner pleasing to God. And I can be honest with you, that is what I pray. That is what I want. That's what I'm hoping. I do personally feel like an amateur diamond cutter who's read one page of the diamond cutting book and been given the hope diamond and a blindfold and a sledgehammer. And God's saying, go to work. There's something very precious I, I when I uh, when they're when young pastors come in here to preach you know and I hear them give their sermon and maybe they're in seminary or maybe they're just out and they've got all the theological acumen one of the things that I really am looking for is are you giving me the impression that you're handling something way bigger than yourself or have you got it all figured out I mean I know what it's like to be a young seminarian right when you come back and you got it all figured out I'm going to tell all those people what's up you can talk to me in 30 years. There's no need for a temple in this perfect church, this new heavens, new earth, because the purpose of the temple was to teach of Jesus himself. That's why there was a temple. You know, there's only one mention. You know, you probably hear a lot of talk about the rebuilding of the temple all the kind of end time stuff. Oh, they're going to rebuild the temple, rebuild. Let me tell you, I don't think they're going to rebuild the temple. I think they already rebuilt the temple. I remember I was at a baseball game with a bunch of Christians, not from our church, and I sat down with this couple that I didn't know at all, but they found out I was the pastor, and they're like, so you think you think they're about to rebuild the temple? You know, and the end times are going to begin. And I said, I go, I think it's already been rebuilt. And then they thought I was going to give them an intelligence report from Hal Lindsey or something, you know. And they're like, Really? I go, Yeah. And then I gave them this verse. Jesus answered them, saying, Destroy this temple. And by the way, this is the only mention in the New Testament of rebuilding the temple, the only time you see it. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. They were very literal, you know. And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And I remember when I told them that, I'm like, oh, it's the temple of his body. I think it's been rebuilt. And I remember the reaction. You know, I don't want to be mean. I don't know. I wouldn't know if I saw him. It was a long time ago. I remember them kind of going, well, yeah, that. <laughs> I'm like, that's kind of a bigger deal. The, the, the one that the temple was to point to is a bigger deal than the temple. Now, even though John is writing in this passage, I think of the full consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. Right? I mean, it's kind of like this is, this is it. And I, I don't think, like I said last time, that it's a big cube flying around in space. I think it's all very symbolic. He's teaching us things that we would have learned in the Old Testament. But I don't think this is entirely anticipatory. I don't think he's just saying that's the future where we're like, oh, no, future's going to be great. It, it, there is something today that this means to me and should mean to you. Because the resurrected body of Christ is the true temple. Tear it down, and in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. Well, I don't think we have to do a lot of guesswork to know what was rebuilt in three days, right? That's the resurrection. You know, churches will celebrate... Easter, Resurrection Day. But when we are joined to Christ through faith, we become part of this. We become living stones being built into a spiritual house. I mean, this this idea of a temple and stones and a house, it's a very interesting theme in the Bible because in one respect, Peter says we're living stones, right? So each one of us is like a brick in the temple. But when we read Paul, each one of those bricks is itself a temple. Are you not the temple? So you've got this kind of thing where God's going, to look at it. Obviously, let's not be woodenly literal about this. We are spiritual stones being built into a spiritual house. And that is contingent upon the unity that we have with Christ through faith. That I mean, Jesus so identifies his people with himself, it can almost become uncomfortable. In terms of the closeness, Father, make them and me one as you and I are one. Like this is a high priestly prayer that he has. Let us pray that the church not get in the way of Christ and his desire to minister. Let us rather with Paul say this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a simplicity to the message. You know, the, the vast majority of the New Testament was written to correct errors. If, if the church understood everything perfectly, we probably would just have the Gospels and maybe Acts. But all of a sudden, you get into Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, and Paul's going, wow, I'm hearing that you guys have really messed things up. Let me address these things. And then we probably, well, I, I, would, I think I could argue convincingly that there would be no early church councils if there weren't errors in the church. The council of Nicaea or Chalcedon. There are these councils where you're getting together and the church is going, wow, there is an error in the church. They don't believe Jesus is truly God. They don't believe in the Trinity. We, we need to work this out. Those, if the church was perfect... We wouldn't need those things. God is continually correcting us, bringing us back within the boundaries of that faith once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. I recall a ministerial candidate actually on this platform during, we had presbytery here. Where we... um, interview candidates to be pastors. And I remember this particular candidate took an exception. He actually didn't take an exception. Technically, he just said he didn't believe that the world was created in, the, in six days. You know, six sequential days. Six sequential, more or less, 24-hour days. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. And his argument was that since light was created on day one and the sun was created on day four, it just didn't make sense to view the days as sequential. I don't know if you guys have ever wrestled with that. I mean, you got light on day one, but you don't have the sun until day four. And then he made this statement, and I think it was this statement that caused him to actually fail the exam. He said he could not comprehend of a day with light but without a sun. I can't comprehend of that. I guess he didn't read this verse. Right? The Lamb is its light. The sun is not the sole source of light. Nor is the sun necessary for light to exist. Now, don't get me wrong. God has created a universe with solar systems, right? Right? you got sun systems. And if we were to just pursue this scientifically, life without the sun would cease to exist. I mean, if, if for some reason some big gigantic planet hit our sun, this sermon would be over. <laughs> we, we kind of recognize that sun, in a certain sense, is necessary to life and existence. This is why, by the way, if you want to kind of Google this, solar deities, right? Gods that relate, like Ra, the Egyptian god, was the sun god. And he had a hat with a big sun, and he would ride solar boats up in space. Like almost, there are untold world religions that go, the sun is so necessary to our existence, we view the sun as a god. So you kind of get that. I mean, I kind of understand that. Now, I, I don't think John is writing entirely literally here. I think that, you know, we talk about big, giant pearls. I don't think there were some big, giant oysters. like Some, some big, giant shocked. we need oysters. <laughs> and I don't think this necessarily means that there will be no sun or no moon in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't think it, matter of fact, it doesn't even say that. It doesn't say there is no sun, it just says there's no need for a sun or a moon. But I think the greater point here is not the restructuring of the celestial, but this, that the very things that we view necessary to our existence are actually expendable in the light of the glory of God. We know in a certain sense that we need a son. But God is saying, well, in the light of my glory, you don't need anything. The things that you need the most, you don't need them. I hope that we will appreciate in this idea of the light, the magnitude of the words of Christ when he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You know, and I'm tempted when I looked at that, because light is such a magnificent theme in in scripture, and we are beginning to see, you know, cultural trends go up and down, and there definitely seems to be a trend toward darkness. You know, because it's not only just literal darkness, but a darkness of morality, a darkness of spirituality. You know, this this idea here, and when Jesus says, I'm the light, I mean, that is such an all-comprehensive statement. I mean, I think it includes everything. It includes light itself and everything that light teaches us about. And there's something about, by the way, people who are in the dark, they don't like the light. Jesus taught that very clearly. He goes, you know, they, they won't come to me because the light exposes them that their deeds are evil. I used to work in a restaurant. There was a whole bunch of us in the room who all worked in the same restaurant in Redondo Beach about 30 or 40 years ago. And it was a nice restaurant, but let me tell you what we used to do. And I didn't do it. The manager did it. One of the managers was actually up here already this morning. I'm not saying he did it. But you, you keep the lights nice and low. He worked at the restaurant, too. A bunch of us worked it. Anyways, why do you keep the lights low in a restaurant, even a nice restaurant? You know why? Because you don't want people seeing that little thing that might be crawling. (laughs) Everything looks better in the dark. I remember when I was in junior high going to a dance, and the lights are out, and we're all dancing. And then at the end of the night, it was in the Redondo cafeteria. They turn all the lights on, and you're like, look, horrible. Well, how much more our sin, right? When God says, I'm going to really turn the light on and you can see your own dark, sinful heart. Light is an amazing theme in, in the text. But moving on to verse 24, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Now, we opened this morning with a call to worship from Isaiah 60, and if you looked at Isaiah 60 and Psalm 21, you'd see that John is very much borrowing from Isaiah 60, but there are some distinctions in the way the New Covenant author teaches of the Old Covenant message. For example, when Isaiah writes of this idea of bringing things into the presence of God's light, Isaiah writes of the wealth of the nations, coming into the light of God, the wealth of the nations. But here we read it a little differently. We read of the glory and honor of the nations coming in to that light. And again, this is just one passage that could be taught on so much, but at very least, this ought to be the direction of the nations. The direction of the nations is to walk in the light of Christ and bring that glory and honor ultimately into his eternal kingdom. That which we are called to individually, right? Glorify God, enjoy him forever. We are also called to collectively. I'm called to do that as an individual person. We are called to do that as a church. We are called to do that as a family. And we are called to do that as the nation's. I was watching an interview this week with Frank Zappa. You guys remember Frank Zappa? He was, you know, his boss. And he made this statement, and I I understand it's a loaded word, and it's got all sorts of kind of negative connotations, but it was probably, the interview was probably in the 80s or 90s, and he's got a suit on, which was really weird to see him, but it was like on, I don't know, the Dick Cavett show or something. And he's basically going, this nation is going to become a fascist theocracy. Now, not to get into fascism and the fact that it seems today that people who are fascists love to call other people fascists. You know, there's this theme going on where, you, just so you understand, that people will accuse you of being the very thing they are just to kind of muddy the waters, leaving that alone for now. The idea of a theocracy is such a dirty word, it's become such a dirty word like patriarchy. It's become a dirty word, the idea that a father should rule. That's what patriarchy means, right? Father rule. Oh, heaven forbid. Theocracy, what does that mean? It means God rules. It's in a governmental fashion. Let me tell you something that maybe you don't know. There will always be a theocracy. Your God may be Stalin or Lenin. Or it may be what's popular, it may be Frank Zappa, it may be the Beatles, it may be whoever seems to be controlling the theme or the narrative of your culture, but whoever it is, that's your God, they're in charge. So the idea that we have a word that we don't like, where everybody, you know, cringes when it comes up just because people don't want to get into the discussion of what it actually means and who their God might actually be. But I think it's not unclear that the Bible teaches that the kings of the earth should kiss the sun. I don't know about you, and I'm not going to get all pragmatic here, but I would rather live in a nation where, whether it's the king or the president or the governor, I would rather live in a nation where they recognize that they are not the ultimate authority, but they bow the knee to Christ. I think that would be a better nation to live in. We could argue about that. But I'd want to know, if you're arguing, who's in charge of yours? So it's something to think about. Now, I don't think this verse is teaching that there will be individual nations. I don't think in heaven, or I don't think there'll be individual kings in heaven. I don't think there'll be any need for those types of things. It appears more to say that whatever true glory is achieved in earthly kingdoms will find its ultimate fulfillment in eternity, which I, again, thinks, I think is the point of verse 26 we'll get into in a minute, that, that in the same thing for me, whatever, whatever I'm doing here for God will ultimately, whatever I'm doing to glorify God will find its ultimate fulfillment in, in eternity. Verse 25, its gates shall not be shut all, at all by day, and there shall be no night there. People enjoy talking about times and places where things were so good, you don't need to lock the door. You ever talk to people like that? You know, where I grew up, you didn't need to lock the door. I'm not going to talk about how often we lock our door, because I don't want to, it just goes on the radio, and I want my house robbed. I lock it every time. And we have an alarm, a guard dog. (laughs) I'm well-armed. We have a labradoodle. But I think that this idea of like a safety is in part what's being presented here. That's part of the, the picture, right? Yeah, where it's, you know, people come and go and there's no worry. But I also, I also think it displays access. The gates of God's kingdom are open. I mean, that's, what, that's the way I think this needs to be proclaimed now. These are gates. To use Isaiah's words in Isaiah 60, these are gates in God's wall of salvation. So you got this wall, right? But in the wall, there are gates. Just so we're clear, there's no climbing the wall. You don't get in that kingdom by climbing over the wall, you enter through the gate. And you know what Jesus said about the gate? It's narrow. Now, you know, we've got numerous gates in this thing. You know, don't push it too far. But the idea is, you know, in a certain sense, Jesus himself is the gate. He is the door. Right? But it's narrow. It is a narrow gate. So it's not, as is so popular today, the idea of your truth and my truth. You're going to enter through your truth. And I'll enter through my truth. There's no your truth and there's no my truth. You know what there is? Truth. It is the way Jesus describes Himself. I am the way and the truth. There is a thing called truth, and we all conduct our lives as if something is true, right? Don't we? We we get up in the morning, we we function that way as if something is true. I think it's a good thing to investigate. Well, what do I think is true? I remember I came into a long conversation with a Zen Buddhist, you know, like I was trying to evangelize this Zen Buddhist, and he kept accusing me of engaging in Aristotelian logic. He goes, The problem is, you're engaging in Aristotelian logic, right? So, which is just logic, right? A is A. A cannot be A and not A. You know, a is either A or not. You know, it's just logic. And he's like, because, you know, he believed in one hand clapping. and the, Like, the idea of logic needs to go out the window. And I remember thinking, wow, it's kind of hard to battle that discussion. Right? Because every time I make a logical point, he would just say, well, you're just engaging in logic. But when I went home that night, I realized that's what he was doing, too. Like, he, he was borrowing what I was doing. He was... He was using logic to try to show me that logic doesn't make sense. And you know what that is? That's called self-refuting. And if you believe in something that refutes itself, let me advise you to change your opinion. (laughs) Verses 26 and 27. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. See, that's what they're doing. They're bringing it into it. But there shall, by no means, enter it anything that defiles our causes, an abomination, or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So he finishes chapter 21 with a comparison. The glory and honor are in God's heavenly kingdom, but nothing can defile it. It's this, not that. Heaven, with the potential of defilement, would not be heaven. An eternal dwelling containing lies and abominations would be closer to hell than to heaven. It's, it's, you, you don't want to spend eternity at a place where there's corruption. So we would do well to ask this as we finish up here. How can I, as a sinful creature, occupy such a holy place. You're painting a picture of a place where there is no abomination, no lie, no sin, no evil. It is pristine. And if you're honest and you take a good hard look at yourself, you kind of go, well, if that's the requirement, there's no place for me in it. Well, the passage answers that we have to have our name Written in the Lamb's Book of Life. All right? So here's how you get in. You have to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? I think this book is a poetic way to indicate those who are true believers. So let me ask you this question. Is that you? And if it is you, how do you know that's you? What is the means by which we are declared righteous before a oh, holy God? What is the means by which God is going, I've put together a pristine, holy, sinless place and I'm bringing you into it. And you're like going, well how can I be in it, wretched sinner that I am? How do I get to be part of such a holy place? Can there be anything in the whole domain of human existence that is more pressing or critical to ask than, what must I do to be saved? Philippian jailer. What What do I need to do? Now, I talked about this. I talk about this a lot. But I want to take just a moment here as we finish up to express what it's not. What's not on the list in terms of the answer of what must I do to be saved? Right at the very beginning, let's take away your good works, how good you are, religious or otherwise. You may go, well, you know, I, I, uh, I may, I, I'm a sinner, but I'm also, but I've been on all the religious stuff, and I've got an uncle who's a pastor, so we got that going for me. And no, it's not any inherent moral or religious value that you seem to want to assign to yourself. We are not declared righteous before God by virtue of our membership in a religious community. I am a member of a church. Should you be a member of a church? I think the Bible indicates that you should. But the mere inclusion, the fact that you are part of this body, That you stood up here and took vows, that you've been baptized, is insufficient. The New Covenant, the New Testament, is replete with baptized members in good standing who were later declared to be shipwrecked in their faith. They did all the stuff, and yet they were not true believers. Well, what about participation in the sacraments? I mean, we're pretty persnickety about that in this church because we realize the Bible says you could drink judgment to yourself, right? I mean, the the church of Corinth is so profane the Lord's Supper that it's like, when you do it, it's not even the Lord's Supper anymore. But participation in the sacraments, Lord's Supper or baptism, will not bring a person to peace with God. Directly after his baptism, Simon, right after his baptism, was warned that his heart revealed that a soul may perish. He'd just been baptized. (laughs) Paul was not unclear that it was within the church that people who were taking the Lord's Supper could very well be drinking judgment upon themselves. So it's not church membership, it's not righteousness, it's not morality, it's not participation in the sacraments, and I'll add to this, it's not your faithfulness, not even faithfulness in the true religion. Should we seek to be faithful? That's the fourth question, right? The lordship of Christ. But you know what? The fourth question isn't the third question, right? Do we trust in Jesus Christ alone? That's the third question, The fourth question is, well, I guess I should live a certain way. But on that great and terrible day of judgment, my faithfulness is not in any of those books. I mean, it may be referenced as something that evidenced, right? Where Jesus says, well, I was hungry and you gave me some food, right? I was in prison and you visited me. That was was evidence. But how many people in prison do you got to visit before God saves you? No, I think it's really important and critical to understand this, this order, this order of salvation. That we are dead in our sins and trespasses, and God gives us a new heart. He does it. Our heart is dead. It is a stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. And when He gives us that heart of flesh, you know what happens? Our eyes are opened. He regenerates us. us, We are dead. makes us alive. That's what regeneration means. And all of a sudden we see. And what do we see? We see we're sinners in need of a Savior. And he inclines our hearts to say yes to Christ. We are justified. We are declared righteous before God by faith alone. And faith is itself a gift from God, the instrument by which he brings us to himself. But if, in fact, that has happened to your heart, you are now a different person. It's not being the different person that changed your heart. It's the changed heart that makes you the different person. That order is critical. You know, I've been in enough hospitals and visited enough people who have issues with their lungs or issues with their hearts, you know, and especially, I think, of the heart, and their heart's not working right, and their skin is pale, right, and they've lost weight, and they just don't look Good. And then they get a heart transplant and all of a sudden there's color. The color didn't change the heart. The heart changed the color. It is only God who can change our heart. How do you know your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Has His Spirit testified to your spirit that you're His child? Have your eyes been opened to see? Do you believe Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Same message through the whole Bible. Now, don't get me wrong here. Again, I'm not going to get into all of it. But, but there are a lot of people who say, yeah, I'm right with God. And they're living as if their heart is still made of stone. That person needs to do some self-examination. Right? You're like, now you're just mocking God. Now you're just kind of going, you know, I'm religious or what have you. So, I mean, there, I think there needs to be that type of self-examination taking place. But what you don't want to do is kind of go, my level of faithfulness is what's making me a child of God. None of us would. I wouldn't do that to my own kids. I don't want my kids to think, you know what? Um, Dad is holding back his fatherhood until I put out the trash. Should they put out the trash? Yeah should they do the dishes yeah should they put the christmas decorations away that have been in the back yard since christmas since it's almost april <laughs> but but if they begin to think my dad isn't doesn't love me until i do that my dad doesn't love me until i reach a certain level of productivity certain level of obedience That's not the kind of dad I want to be, and that's not the kind of father that we have in heaven. I think, you know, when I'm done with this series in Revelation, before we get to um, Luke and Acts, which is where I think I'm going to end up, I'm going to periodically do, I periodically go through the Ten Commandments. But you know what the very first thing is in the Ten Commandments? It's not a command, is it? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Have no other gods before me. Then the commands come. He doesn't say, look at, as soon as you obey at a level, I'll bring you out of the slavery of Egypt. No, I'm bringing you out first. And now that you've been brought out, there's a certain way you ought to live. I think that order is critical. The Christian faith is tailor-made for the sick and sinful. It was at the height of Paul's maturity that he declared himself to be a wretched sinner. Faithfulness may be the necessary fruit of saving faith, but it is by the singular instrumentality of faith that God gives us the right to be called children of God. Sola fide, salvation by faith alone is a central, critical doctrine of the Christian faith As Martin Luther taught, justification by faith alone is the foundation upon which the church stands or falls. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as a church that we would be responsible, that we would do what we've been called to do, and yet at the same time let us, like John the Baptist, decrease that our Savior Jesus Christ may increase. May everything we do as a church seek to accelerate that, to herald and proclaim that there is a God in heaven who sent his son to rescue sinners. May that be, Father, our peace, we pray in his name. Amen.